When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. I should say, back here with me, Lucy. We've been on hiatus, haven't we? We've been on our extended summer holidays, gadding about the world or sitting in our parched gardens looking mournfully at brown bits of shriveled up grass. Maybe that was just me. Maybe you had a, a more I've, I've been doing, I just I decided... It was really important to me to keep my garden going till the end of August uh, because there is a traditional gathering where I live in Ireland. There's a graveyard mass called a pattern uh, where the entire sort of community gathers together, a mass is set outside and you sort of tend the graves essentially. And it was very important to me to have lots and lots of flowers to be able to take to our patch of the graveyard. And I got them going. But I can't tell you, Lucy, at that point, I decided to sacrifice everything. Dahlia's in all their pomp. I was like, well, I'm, I can't see you now. You're going, you're going in my graveyard bouquet. That's what's happening. So I was, it was, I was getting rid of everything good there. So now I have to say, I can't have any more visitors ever. Because now it's just stalks and the graveyard yeah, looks wonderful. Got a yeah. beautiful, beautiful collection of stalks. Well, <laughs> we can't all say that, can we? No, exactly. How's yours? It, well, it's pretty dry, but we had a sort of deluge last week, so that helped. But we now have a hosepipe ban. Well, but I wasn't using a hosepipe anyway. Uh, washing up water, that's what I'm doing. Yeah. Sloshing my washing up water on my gunnera and my tree fern. Are we supposed to be talking about books, Alex? Books. Or- flowers whatever they're the same all the good stuff but yes we are it's lovely to be back have you done lots of reading over the summer I have actually done a bit of quite weird eclectic reading I've read things from two years ago and 25 years ago and that have just been published I think this week maybe today even one of which actually is the Maggie O'Farrell book which we're going to talk about very soon we are indeed and anything else that really stood out for you Yes, I read a book called Consider the Aardvark about a year and a half, two years after everybody else read it. Well, um, I haven't read it, so you're well, ahead of me. Well, you're, ahead you of, you're ahead of the game between you and me. And I can't exactly remember who it's by, an American lady. It's brilliant. It's, it's, it's by Jessica Anthony. Uh, thank you. And I, you, you know, my special skill is to know who books are by even when I haven't read them, you see. That gets you a long way in what That's I believe is called a metropolitan skill. elite dinner party. <laughs> I wouldn't know, but <laughs> it sort of is about aardvarks and also kind of about the American political scene. It's it's absolutely brilliant. It's very odd and quite brilliant, I thought. 
How about well, you? I am reading A.M. Holmes's book, The Unfolding, and because that's about the American novel, about the American political scene, beginning with the day that Obama is elected and John McCain is defeated. And it's essentially a book that starts with the premise and with the characters. What if the election of Barack Obama was your worst nightmare? What would you then do? How would you sort of organise? And it kind of tells the story of how those sort of movements that eventually lead to Trump began. And it's really gripping. It's absolutely fascinating. I'm really hugely enjoying it. But I should also say that a very, very different book, which I have reviewed for our colleague, Toby Lishtig, and it will appear, I think, relatively shortly in the TLS, is Emma Donoghue's Haven, which is the story of the establishing of a monastery on a splinter of rock called Skellig Michael. Which is oh, yes, I'm afraid I know it from Star Wars. I'm very sorry. Everybody knows it from Star <laughs> know, Wars, except me. Except me, because I'm not a Star Wars person. But yes, imagine going there for the first time ever. There aren't any steps up to the top. There's nothing. And trying mm. to live your life there. So, yes, I've read that too. But um, Wonderful. We should also mention, Alex, that now we're back in full effect. And we're actually going to be back. We're doing another live podcast on September the 18th as part of the How the Light Gets In Festival at Kenwood House. Yes. And we'll be there talking to some exciting mystery guests. There's all sorts of debates and talks and music going on. And we will do our best to not drag it all down, won't we? Lucy, are you when you say <laughs> How the Light Gets In, are you yourself letting a little bit of light in them? Where When you say mystery guests, are you really giving the game away that as yet they're a mystery to us? I couldn't comment. I'm just titillating everyone's um, interest. By, yes, um, I am enormously looking forward to watch that. Watch this that space. Will, that will yeah. be great. Watch this space. So this week, I mean, my goodness, the publications are coming thick and fast, aren't they? I mean, it is very much that time of year. One of the most eagerly anticipated is Maggie O'Farrell's The Marriage Portrait, you know, her last novel, Hamnet, extremely well-reviewed, well-received, prize-winning, read by millions. And now she's come back with The Marriage Portrait. That's being reviewed in this week's TLS by Rowan Mateson. And she's joining us from, I believe, Nova Scotia, Lucy. It is Nova Scotia. It's very, very good of her. It'll be quite early in the morning as well. And we will also have a fantastic tour in which we will go on foot to Scotland in the company of Vashti Bunyan and Sarah Hill. And I'm very much looking forward to talking about the place of women in rock music going back over 50 years and pretty much to the present day. But first, in 2020, Maggie O'Farrell's Hamnet found immense favour with readers and reviewers and indeed with prize juries, winning, among other honours, the Women's Prize for Fiction. An imagined life of Shakespeare's son, who died at the age of 11, it took an obscure historical episode as its starting point, and her new novel, The Marriage Portrait, also looks to the past. There are two works of art lying behind it, Alessandra Allori's painting of Lucrezia de' Medici and Robert Browning's poem, my Last Duchess. Rowan Mateson has reviewed the novel in this week's paper and joins us now to discuss what sounds like a very intriguing fictional premise. Rowan, welcome. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much. Well, to begin with, this double inspiration, a painting and a poem, sounds fascinating and also challenging for a novelist to manage. Just tell us a bit about how it works in practice. It's always a bit of a risky thing, I think, to take on a kind of literary icon and do your own take on it, give it your own spin. But I can see the temptation. Browning's My Last Duchess is such a a well-known and and popular poem, and it also is such a brilliant story in itself. But it's very much just the story told from the Duke's point of view. It's a dramatic monologue in the, the Duke's voice. And I think everyone who reads the poem knows very quickly that the Duke's version of what happened to his marriage and his former duchess is not the only version of the story that you can tell. So I can see why it was such a temptation for O'Farrell to pick that up and tell the story that everyone imagines reading Browning's poem, the story from the duchess's point of view. What was that marriage like? So it was really fascinating to me to see what she did with the material that Browning had given her and has given us that we know so well. What kind of story was she going to tell with it? You know it probably more than most people. I mean, you were an enormous fan and aficionado and expert of of My Last Duchess, aren't you? You've taught it and analysed it for many years. It's such a sinister poem, isn't it? 
It really is. It, it sort of creeps up on you when you read it for the first time. I think as we often do when someone is speaking in first person, we, we take them a little bit for granted. Mm. But the thing about first person in fiction with the narrator, especially an unreliable narrator, but also with a dramatic speaker in poetry, is they always give away more about themselves than they really intend to, just as we all give ourselves away by how we speak and the words we choose and the things we decide to say. We're always inadvertently telling a story about ourselves in addition to the story that we think we're telling. And one of the great pleasures of reading Browning's dramatic monologues is that his speakers, they're very self-aware, but they, they also are often kind of sinister or, or twisted or a little bit uneasy making for us. And so as you read this story with the Duke pointing out the features of his wife's portrait and explaining his version of his marriage and all the things that he thinks that that he did wrong, you start to realize that it's the Duke who maybe is doing something wrong. It's being described as a perfect little murder mystery in 56 mm. lines. And it's really leaves you really kind of anxious on the Duchess's behalf. Well, that's it, isn't it? It is a mystery because we don't know what's happened to her. And the impression that it makes on the reader, many impressions, is one of jealousy and coercion, possibly violence what happened to her and we we just don't know but we I think do come away with the impression that he was not a very nice man to be married to. No not at all and and again one of the fun things about Browning is that he lets the language do that work for us and you read along and what you start to hear is the Duke's pride and his possessiveness and the way that he always seems to have wanted to objectify his Duchess so now he's, he's finally got her really where he wanted her which is in a kind of fixed position as a part of his art collection. He didn't want a living, breathing woman who loved and laughed and felt things and maybe had her own ideas and her own agency. He wanted someone who would fulfill his purposes, and he's finally got that. And in the poem, he's really pleased that he's the only one who draws back the curtains to show people even her portrait. So even in art now, he's got her under his control. So O'Farrell really picks up on that dynamic, the sense that the, the Duke that we're dealing with is someone who has his own agenda and doesn't want his wife to have any agency, any, any kind of character of her own. But when I started the novel, what I was most curious to see was what was O'Farrell going to do with that mm. unreliability of the Duke that Browning gives us, the sense that everything he's saying could be interpreted as being perfectly legitimate. It's just the way he says it makes you very uncomfortable. And when he finally says in the poem, I gave commands, then all smiles stopped together. He could just be saying, I told her to shut up and be quiet, but you really suspect that he's given commands that have put an end to her life. And so I was curious, just as a novelist, what was O'Farrell going to do with this character and also with this form? Lucy, you've read the book, haven't you? I haven't yet mm. read it, but I know that you have. Yes, and I was just going to say it's brilliant, I think, what she does with both of the characters, because first of all, she gives Lucrezia a real, incredibly believable character of her own and an arc of her own. But she also does portray the Duke very well. You can see that outwardly he can behave absolutely beautifully to everybody. He says the right thing. He seems to be charming and attentive and polite. And certainly in public, he seems to be very attentive to his wife. And it's only the people who, who get to know him very, very well who know what he's like. And sometimes if he says something, Lucrezia has to check that there's someone else in the room hearing what she's hearing because she can't quite believe it. So I think she gets that kind of doubling very well. Do you think, Rowan? Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it, that instead of giving us the Duke as her narrator and giving us again that unreliability, she's shown what it might look like to Lucrezia watching her husband and seeing him at first as someone who maybe offers her freedom as a married woman in a society where that's really the only way she gets any independence or any kind of power of her own. And then the disillusionment and the fear that follows when she realizes that that's all very well provided she never contradicts him, she never counteracts him, she doesn't even express any opinions about him. And if she does that, then that two-faced nature, the switch from him from one man into a, a very different and much more threatening and menacing man, it's very powerful. And that instability that she feels, which man am I married to? Which one am I going to meet when I go into the room? Mm, and Lucrezia is portrayed almost in a series of, of sort of cages. Some of them are of her family's making and she's trapped by all sorts of things. She's trapped by the portrait, but she's trapped by buildings. She's trapped by dresses sometimes. She's got all sorts of constraints around her. 
Yeah, that's a wonderful description of those patterns. And I think Browning in his poetry is very savvy about that, about the sense that the version of the Renaissance that he's giving is one that's very patriarchal. It's one in which women are valued for their usefulness to the family. What alliance can they be made? So they're sort of tools or objects. And he often brings this up. And also he has this very strong sense that powerful men like to contain the women that they love, that they see them as parts of their own personalities. He has an even more sinister poem called Porphyria's Lover, in which the jealous lover is trying to figure out how he can keep his beloved with him forever. And he says, oh, I found a thing to do. He wraps her hair around her neck and strangles her, which is not quite how you expect this love poem to unfold. So My Last Duchess is more subtle about that. But I think O'Farrell really picks up on this vision that Browning had of the Renaissance, that gender dynamic is so unbalanced and it's so damaging to the women. The metaphor of, of the tigress that were shown early in the novel that comes to her father's menagerie and she watches the tigress pacing in her cage. And I think we quickly realize that this is an image for the kind of life that she's leading. And we just hope maybe she'll escape. Maybe she won't die. One of the things from the poem that kind of bubbles up is that his jealousy is not simply of relations she have, might have with other men or other people. He tries in some way to limit her enjoyment of anything. He's angry about the smiles she gives to other people and other things and to her pleasure in life. And that's a, a very sort of something that we recognize as part of a, a rather kind of modern tactic, what we think of, I should say, as a modern tactic of psychological control. Of course, it's a kind of gift to a novelist, isn't it? And it's really quite fun to watch O'Farrell pick up all those details and integrate them into her story. One of the things that in the poem he's particularly annoyed by is how much she likes riding her mule around on the terrace, which sounds very harmless. As you mm. say, her pleasures, you know, they, they seem like innocent pleasures, even though the Duke is pointing them out to us as faults. You say, well, she, she liked to smile. She liked to talk to people. She liked to ride her mule. None of that sounds like, you know, someone who likes cherries. It doesn't sound like someone who's committing a great, a great offense. And in the novel, you can see her bringing in these little details as part of, of Lucrezia's life. And she does like to ride her mule around. It doesn't mean anything except that it's something she gets to do for fun and he just can't stand it. Who wouldn't like to ride a mule around on a, on a, on a terrace in Ferrara? I mean, really. Mule. And it, at first, it, he... it seems like his kindness. He gives her these things. He, yes, he says, yeah. go enjoy yourself in the garden. But as he watches her, it's clear, I think, that that makes her just a little bit too real, a little bit too human for him. And it just starts to make him restless. It's another example of her. She feels a strong affinity with animals from the outset. She clearly does anyway, just as a child, just as some people do. And then she feels a strong affinity, as you say, with the tigress. And, you know, the, the animals which are either badly treated, she feels a lot of empathy with them. Or if they're free, she feels very jealous. And he realizes this to some extent, doesn't he, Rowan? As you say, and that it looks as though he understands her. But it's like, well, OK, you're allowed to enjoy 7% of that. Right. <laughs> But, but if you get any further, forget it kind of thing. And one of the other really interesting things that O'Farrell does, and I don't think this has any basis in the historical story, there's not a lot of information about the Duchess uh, in her real life, but O'Farrell makes her also an artist. And so that lets her really deal with the different approaches to painting in the novel. The Duke's idea that painting is a form of display, it's a form of proof of his power, of his wealth, of his dynasty. But she's creating her own artwork, which has this nice subversive quality to it. She paints one picture underneath and then paints over it. And again, it picks up that sense of unreliability or duplicity that runs through the poem, but gives it a different visual form. And then it creates, and I don't want to give away crucial details of the story because I thought it was quite suspenseful, didn't you? I did. I was actually, because you think you know what's going to happen and then you think, oh, I don't know what's going to happen. And it is actually, there's lots of suspense there. It becomes a kind of thriller almost. Yeah, it's, it's a puzzle. And one of the reasons I think that O'Farrell can play us along that way is that in fact, Browning doesn't tell us exactly what happened to the Duchess. And when he was asked himself what happened, he equivocated. He said, oh, he had her murdered or maybe he shut her up in a convent. So he and said, well, something happened. You know, he, he got rid of her. He, he removed her from his life, from his relevance. But he doesn't actually solve the mystery for us. So we suspect we know what happened. And we open O'Farrell's novel with the Duchess saying, I think this man is going to kill me, and then go back in time to follow how they got to that point. And it cuts back and forth in this really interesting and I think effective way from that late stage where the menace is very real 
to those early stages when you see the, the innocence and the hope and, and maybe the possibility, which then gets degraded and, and worn away by the Duke's cruelty and controlling nature. But O'Farrell is free to figure out what she wants. And in a way, she, she even leaves it. It's not ambiguous to us, but there is a little slippage, I guess I will say, in terms of how she solves mm. the mystery. Is the Duchess dead or not dead? Well, you could actually answer that question in a couple of ways. Mm. It's interesting. I've been thinking of this reading your review, and as we talk about it, it comes home even more. Puts me in mind a little bit of Ali Smith's How to Be Both, which obviously has a kind of similarity, so sort of roughly similar part of the world, roughly similar time period. But that idea of a contemporary reading of the layers of a painting, the fact that you will have a kind of palimpsest that you may then paint over. And what indeed is the actual thing that you're looking at, the thing that's behind it or the thing that's on top of it? How does it work with time? I wondered if that was something that became apparent throughout the book as well. I think it definitely does, although to some extent, I think O'Farrell is committing us more to a sense that there is a, a real version of this mm. and the Duke's is not really the, the right version, that his is the twisted version. Browning really likes uncertainty, maybe less in My Last Duchess, but he wrote a whole book-length poem called The Ring in the Book, which is about a murder a Renaissance murder that shows multiple points of view on the same events. And he likes to play with that possibility that depending on where you look at something from, you might tell a very different story about it. But ultimately, in I think in My Last Duchess and in O'Farrell's novel, our sympathies are all enlisted on the side of the Duchess. And there's a clear villain in the piece. So it does settle that some of that interpretive instability, but using art as a device for that, definitely. And I love that image of the palimpsest for it, that you might see it, but you might not see it. And the unveiling of the portrait that the novel kind of builds towards, the one that's on the wall in Browning's poem, it's a really powerful scene, I think, for that reason. And, and Lucrezia looks at it and she sees herself, but also not herself. And part of that has to do with the allegiance she's kind of forged with the painters who are doing it. And they can see her as the Duke wants her seen, but they can also see something about her or portray something about her that the Duke won't see or, or can't see. And so that artwork really does have that, again, that equivocal quality to it. And she's almost fearful. Will the Duke look at it and see the real woman or will he look at it and, and see the Duchess that, that he wanted? It's interesting because we're talking about the personalities, as it were, fictional characterization in poetry, prose, and a painting of these two people. But it's also to do with the, the system of marriage, isn't it? The system, the women's position in that structural system. Because, of course, Lucrezia, as we learn, is 15 when she's married. She's a child. In fact, worse than, than that, the historical Lucrezia was 13. And O'Farrell mm. notes in her author's note that what she did was she kind of conflated two events of the early marriage and the point at which they left together for the Duke's estate, which took place two years later. So she had to happen all at once. So she was really extremely young and, and vulnerable and treated like a pawn. And, and yes, that is the system that's being highlighted. And she's a little bit excited about it because at least she gets to get out of her father's house. And at first her husband seems like he's going to give her a kind of newfound stature and, and importance in the world. It's only when she realizes that, that it's only as an accessory to his life that she's going to matter, that things really shut down. And Browning is extremely savvy about that. Sometimes we, we talk as if today we've figured all that out, but Browning sees that. And he knew that was true to some extent in his own time too. He had a very a rare marriage himself and his wife, Elizabeth Barrett Browning wrote a wonderful again, for, uh, book length poem, Aurora Lee, which deals a lot with these kinds of imbalances between men and women and ambition and also art. So this was clearly something that they both worked hard to represent in their own poetry. Lucrezia, she does think at the beginning that she is going to get some freedom. And then she looks back on her family home with great fondness when she's there. But I was just thinking, gosh, I hadn't kind of realized this until the end, but actually her father who comes out in the end, he's in this horrible system and he's taking part in it, but his marriage within his marriage he is quite respectful of his wife relatively for the time, you know, interested in her views, wants to talk to her. And then, and then I realized that's a Medici, that's Cosimo de Medici. <laughs> so when you're going, well, the Medicis were pretty good, but this guy's really bad, then you're grasping at straws. Yes, I you really that. lowered the bar quite a bit. There, <laughs> really? And there's a quite a poignant scene in, in the novel when Lucrezia writes home to her mother and she's looking for help and she won't wants to get away from her husband and her mother writes back and says, you know, you're imagining things and behave yourself and, and be a good wife. This is how this works. And you also see that it isn't as simple as an appeal to sisterhood. She does get some warnings or support might be too strong a word from some other members of her husband's family. At one point, her sister-in-law says, be careful. I don't think you know the man that you've married. Be very careful. And she does, she does learn 
much more about that, but it, it's not a simple matter. People have an, an investment in the system, men and women sometimes. And so she really does feel herself to be at a loss. How do I rescue myself? How do I get out of this? Is there any way? And that sense that the Duke's control over her is not really visible to everybody else. Something I really enjoyed was, again, the sense that he has a very covert form of control over her. In, in Browning's poem, I included in my review a little bit of, of the Oscar Wilde's quips about Browning not really being so much a poet as, as a novelist. And it's easy to underestimate the subtlety of, of Browning's actual versification. And in My Last Duchess, one of the details of it is it's in rhyming couplets, but if you just read it dramatically, you won't hear the rhymes. You won't notice that about it. It's quite remarkable, really. And that sense that there is a very controlling form, but it's not immediately apparent is such a clever way to show us how the Duke operates, that he has his excessive control over everything around him. That's his goal, but he wants to appear seamless and elegant and noble. And I think O'Farrell really captures that sense again, that he can go about his business and keep up this facade of good manners and, and nobility. There's an additional frame in Browning's poem, isn't there, that this is taking place, the sort of present day of the poem, as it were, is taking place as he enters another marriage negotiation. And I wondered if that, does that appear in Maggie O'Farrell's novel? It's just nodded to at the end that this is going to be the next step for the Duke. But you're right that in the poem, one thing it does is it, it adds to that point that we've already been making about marriage as a system. He's kind of entered into negotiations for his next wife and he's speaking to the envoy who's there to set the terms. And I think you could hear it very clearly as a kind of cautionary tale for the new wife. At one point in, in O'Farrell's novel, the Duke refers to her in her presence as his first duchess, which is really quite menacing. When yes, you think it's about brilliant. It. Yeah. yeah. And she's like, well, how can that be? Who's, is there going to be another one? And in the poem, it's very clear that he's saying, this is what happened to the wife who didn't behave. So you feel yeah. very strongly, I think, you feel fear for the next wife being moved into position. Will she please him? Will she end up the same way, kind of frozen in, in his art collection? And uh, it adds a layer it's, of menace. She, again. She's also trapped by biology because the thing that she has to do is produce an heir. I mean, it reminded me of all that when you do the Tudors at school and it's just Henry VIII just waiting and waiting and waiting. He's like, okay, I haven't got an air off this yeah. one. Let's try and the blaming, next one. of course, his wife of always course, and, never, yeah. and never himself. Yeah, yeah. and O'Farrell. Blaming the women. Yeah. O'Farrell does kind of introduce that as a plot point that, that what he wants is an heir and that he has so far never sired a child and she's warned. And so she'll be the one who carries the blame for that and he'll need to move her on and replace her. And it, and it may, do, may do no good at all. And I think she makes Lucrezia someone who, who does have intelligence and wit and agency. And so that you, you lament the way in which he tries to crush her spirit and, and contain her and, and control her. Of course, you're rooting for her against this man. So it gives that added dimension. Just thinking about Maggie O'Farrell's works kind of in total. I mean, she's written contemporary novels. She's written all sorts of time periods and all sorts of styles of novel. But she, you know, with Hamnet before this and, and with this book, she seems to have entered a real sort of vein of these historical retellings or additions. And I'm getting from what you're saying that you feel it's a productive one. Is that right? I think she has a really wonderful style as a historical novelist. I love historical fiction that is kind of maximalist, like Hilary Mantel, not even so much the Cromwell novels, but her earlier one about the French Revolution, which is just dense, dense oh, pages. I love TL. that one. Can we talk about that for six hours now? <laughs> oh, gosh, well, I, should, I wonder, should I we have a, pod, a podcast special on a, a place of greater safety would be a, yes, a please. Of but joy, you can sort of it? see, too, why, why that was not Mantel's most popular novel because yes. it is it's not as accessible it's a very no, dense no. or maybe ASBI it's the children's book which is also very very dense and lots of exposition and O'Farrell does not do that she has a much lighter touch in both Hamnet and this one but she does seem to me to choose her details so well they're really tactile they're really you can smell Renaissance Florence you know what it mm. looks like you can sort of feel the flowers and the herbs in the garden as she's going around on her mule so she she is not as minimalist as say Daniel Dutton in, in her book about Margaret Cavendish which is extremely minimal but it it has this kind of lightness to it this lightness of touch and every detail just seems to be very very effective I was eager to read this novel before if you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I knew it was inspired by My Last Duchess because I've enjoyed all of O'Farrell's fiction, but especially Hamnet. I was just so impressed at how she made a really strong personal story about loss and grief so evocative and also so historically resonant. You really felt that she had given you the crucial details you needed to see it and and follow it in the moment. And this felt the same to me. It's very easy reading, right? It's not dense the way that Place of Greater Safety is dense, but it, it's also, it's not trivial. It, everything feels significant. There's a weight. Mm. Yes, there is a weight. That's what I was going to say. It's weighty. And, but you don't crucially ever think, oh, this is a bit of research <laughs> that's yes, gone that's- in. That's the hardest thing to do. I mean, another novel about Renaissance Florence that I really love is George Eliot's Romola, but that's a really hard sell because (laughs) that's a bit heavier. You do feel the research at every moment. And she knew that. And I always think that her worst novel is still better than most people's best novel. And there's just parts of Romola that are just absolute genius. But there are pages and pages of description and exposition and context that sometimes you just you just breathe a deep sigh and press on. And this is very different. She just carries you through it. And one reason is that she does really make it very personal. She's not trying to say something really big about the Renaissance or historical context. She's giving us a sense of what it might have been like to move in that context as a woman in Lucrezia's, a woman, a girl, really, in Lucrezia's position. Well, and I often have cause to say on this podcast that we leave with a a reading list. And that's just a great joy, obviously, for anybody who likes to read and likes to read widely. But I'm I'm now going away, not only determined to read The Marriage Portrait and also Browning and The Ring of the Book. I think I might have to I might have to read Romola again. And I'd be going back about sort of, I don't know, over 30 years, nearer to 40, I'd say. So there I should are, set, a, set yes. aside some time to do that, shouldn't I? There are scenes in it that you'll never forget, and they have incredible drama and poignancy and power. It's just to get there, you do have to do some significant digging. Rome, we're so grateful to you. That was just such a vivid portrait, um, sorry, pun, accidental, of the book that you gave us there. Thank you so much for coming to talk to us about it today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a delightful conversation.
still to come on the show, we talk rock chicks and groupies with Sarah Hill. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Lucy Dallas. Now we're moving from women in books and portraits to women in song. Earlier this year, three books were published about women in the music industry, two memoirs by the singer-songwriters Vashti Bunyan and Martha Wainwright, and a book of essays called This Woman's Work by musicians and writers. Sarah Hill, an associate professor of popular music at St. Peter's College, Oxford, has written as a fascinating piece about the different perspectives they bring and the challenges all these artists face, not least from the industry itself. Sarah, many thanks for joining us. Thank you. Can you tell us about your starting point for your piece, the feature that the rock magazine Rolling Stone had about chicks who hang out with bands? <laughs> the infamous groupie issue of 1969. Mm. It's a bit infamous now. I think at the time in 1969, 1970, there was an idea that men were the ones who made music and that women were there for the service of the men who made music. So although Rolling Stone and other rock magazines might have featured women as you know, folk singers or people like Janis Joplin and Grace Slick as women who happened to front the band that they were playing in. There was still kind of a resistance to the idea that women could actually be musicians in their own right. So the groupies issue was really um, sort of the signal moment when they codified this idea of women as sex objects. And it's kind of denying the fact that the women who were maybe sex objects who were having sex with musicians were doing it on their own terms and because they wanted to do it, not because there was an expectation that they had to be available for these you know, great rock stars. And also, um, I mean, as you point out, there were plenty of female musicians. It's just that they weren't necessarily getting any kind of traction or serious attention, I suppose. Well, exactly. Um, so people like Grace Slick and Janis Joplin, so two women who were fronting bands in San Francisco at the time that Rolling Stone started, were serious women and serious musicians and strong characters in their own right. They were part of a band, sure. They were also recognized for their relationships with the men in the band or the way that they were I don't know, maybe not the songwriters, or there would be a way that they would be taken down a peg. So although they were the focal point of the band when they were on stage, the stuff around them that got the most notice in the press really became more about their, their social lives, their sex lives. Mm. So that was something that, that carried on quite a bit in Rolling Stone. And there's another infamous moment in the 70s when Rolling Stone had a feature on Joni Mitchell. Now, Joni Mitchell, obviously, canonic woman singer song. It's difficult to say she's not a serious musician, isn't it, really? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but they had this kind of a, a flow chart that showed all the men that she had slept with. And it was, what was the title of it? it was something like Joni Mitchell, everyone's old lady kind of thing. Like, so wow. she said, well, yeah, she slept wow. with James Taylor and she slept with Leonard Cohen and she slept with these guys. And it, it had nothing to do with the fact that she had just released, you know, Hissing of Summer Lawns or something, you know, whatever the album was. They came mm. out. It had to do with, yeah, sure, she thinks she's great, but really she's only there because she slept with all these guys, which is patently untrue. My and she, God, they, they'd slept with yeah. her. I would well, put it that way around. I, mean, I mean, yeah. Seriously. Yeah, I know, seriously. But let's, uh, let's do their flow charts and see how they got one. I mean, it's sort of, it struck me whether it sort of goes into two halves, and I don't know whether one is sort of dominant over the other. It's the denying of somebody the idea that they could be musically really capable that they could be yeah. hyper proficient i mean more than proficient 
And it's also denying this idea of essentially kind of male genius, creative genius that cannot be replicated and isn't just a matter of, you know, technical proficiency. And women somehow seem to get it in the neck from both angles. They do. And the thing that's so remarkable also is that, okay, whatever we know about Joni Mitchell and her relationships at the end of the 60s, there are also, there's a famous picture of her sitting on the grass at Graham Nash's house. And, you know, she was in a relationship with Graham Nash, granted, okay, but she's sitting there with David Crosby and Eric Clapton, and she's just, you know, sitting on the grass playing her guitar, and those two guys are trying to figure out what she's doing with her left hand. What's she doing? Like, what, what's making her sound so different? They're trying to figure out her tunings. They're trying to figure out what she was doing with her fingering. She was, they were trying to figure out what she was doing as a musician. It had nothing to do with fawning over her or you know, posing in tight trousers in front of her. It was just about, well, you're, we, we want to learn what you're doing. We want to figure this out as, you know, musicians, as peers. So there are, you know, any number of pictures of some of these women who are showing off what they can do in a very subtle way and are actually teaching the men around them. And that's the kind of thing I think you're absolutely right that Rolling Stone and other rock magazines might have felt a little bit threatened by. So you're not going to be a, a guy in 1969-70 and say, you know, we're intimidated by these women who are doing stuff that men aren't doing. It's going to be more about rock as a male space. It's not a, it's not a space for women. That's the overriding narrative of pretty much all rock criticism for the, you know, the next 50 years. And also you have that brilliant line just saying the counterculture, the 60s counterculture was nothing if not sexist. Yeah. <laughs> um, and our first yeah. subject, Vashti Bunyan, she was very much part of that counterculture, wasn't she? What, what yeah, was she her was. story? Her story is really, it's its really poignant. I mean, she was a, a young woman who was expected to go off to university to get her MRS, you know, to meet a man and to get married. So she had to do something respectable. She was expected to be, you know, to grow up and be a housewife, essentially. And I don't know if it was just something in the air at the time, or if she just happened to fall into this category of people who thought that there was something else in life to do. And she, she had a creative, an urgency to create and to, to find her voice artistically. So she went to art college in Oxford and, you know, was always a little bit restless, never really settled into it. Met a woman there who she started singing with and they met all kinds of other creative people in and around Oxford and just never really wanted to finish her degree. Never really saw the need to, I guess, because she was finding other ways of expressing herself. And there's a, a lot of tension in her story as there would be with anyone's story from that era where the older generation, you know, her parents or her, the rest of her wider family expected her to follow, to conform to what life was supposed to be for a young woman in her twenties, you know, meet a man, get married, have children, settle down and be comfortable. If she wanted to go somewhere else, or she would go and visit her brother who was in New York and his family to try to get a sense of, you know, what's family life like. And then she would kind of find the, the folk clubs and she was finding her voice as a singer and as a guitar player. So she was just never going to fit into any kind of box as far as education or as far as future, you know, matrimony and, and domesticity. So she kind of wandered around and she met people and then she decided, you know, along a roundabout way, she decided to go up to Scotland to join what Donovan was setting up as a sort of artistic commune. So she and her boyfriend at the time decided they were going to go and just like go all in. So they bought an old dairy truck and walked to Scotland. It's quite the story, isn't it? It was, it was her and him and a horse pulling the car and a dog. And a dog, yeah. And it was very, very lo-fi. It was very lo-fi. Everything about her was lo-fi. And the thing that's so painful throughout the story is that she's so unsure of herself. She doesn't give herself credit for doing anything that might be interesting to other people. Or, you know, maybe the relationship comes across occasionally as being not terribly supportive from her partner to her. So there was a lot of unspoken frustration artistically. But, you know, still, this, here's, a, here's a woman finding stuff on the side of the road and, you know, like always finding the right thing. So oh, look, there's a pan on the side of the road and I'm going to, you know, add that to the caravan and I'll be able to make eggs with the, you know, at the next farm we go to. It's just extraordinary. 
Like I would never in a million years, if I had been a hippie in the 60s, I would never probably in a million years have thought about walking from London to Scotland. So there's this weird vicarious pleasure in reading about it, but also the absolute certainty that I never would have put myself in that situation, <laughs> which is which is kind of part of the thrill of reading it, because it's just, it's like, who could possibly think that this would be the thing to do? It's extraordinary. It's amazing the way that you describe it, because I mean, you know, going back to the men at the, you know, who are getting the center stage. I mean, she's also going to Scotland to join a commune set up by that ultimate commune setter up, Donovan, who is not a man without ego. Is that fair to say? He can't he can't (laughs) sort of uh, complain. I hope that I'm slandering him. But, you know, I mean, he has form in this kind of setting up these utopian communities, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. Uh, And sort of wanting that kind of creativity and that wildness and freedom to sort of revolve around him. There's a horrible sort of dramatic irony, isn't there, to this story? You think, oh, God, and you're going to join flipping Donovan. And I don't, to be honest, think, as as you point out in your review, I don't think that this commune is going to be quite what you hope it's going to be. And indeed it isn't. A year plus on foot walking with this idea that, okay, this is the lifestyle that I've absolutely determined to live. This is who I am. I'm not going to do anything that is modern in any way. I'm going to this, like you say, ultimate commune sort of artistic space with all these other people who are going to sit around the campfire and sing songs and, you know, weave rugs and whatever the hell, you know, you have that idea, like that's the thing we're going to do and it's going to be great. And you're, you're living that life all the way along. So you only take things that are given to you. You don't have any money to spend. And you fall into these situations, these scenarios where people are kind to you and they let you stay in their house or their barn over the winter so you don't have to walk through the snow. I mean, all these extraordinary things just with the assumption that everything from that point is going to be exactly the same. Like we're going to get to this place, there's going to be a cottage, I'll be able to weave my rugs or do my needlework, whatever the hell, you know, tend the sheep and plant the gardens. And I'm going to be there with all this community of like-minded people. All those people were already there and had moved on. Is, you know, mentally, psychologically, artistically. So uh, this is a ter- was a terrible metaphor, but there was a movie in the 70s called National Lampoon's Vacation. Oh, that's bear, not where yeah. I thought you would go. No, no, go no. Bear, bear, bear with me here. <laughs> bear with me here. So Chevy Chase and his family go on a car trip across the country to Wally World. That's the, they just want to get to Wally World. Everything's going to be great when they get to Wally World. It's this big amusement park and blah, blah, blah. So the whole thing is about going to Wally World and they get there and it's closed. So I'm thinking the entire time I'm reading Vashti Bunyan's you know, memoirs, like, oh God, it's Wally World. She's going to get there and it's, oh, it's going to be closed and there's going to be no Wally World. And it's going to be really terrible. You just have this like, horrible sinking feeling. You know, there's the hope, obviously, but there's also just this horrible sinking feeling as a reader, like, oh, this is just so bad. It's not going to turn out well. And I turned out fine. I bet it's just, there's well, so much unspoken tension that it's so hard to get over it sometimes. You also yeah. make the point, and this review is so interesting. We've still got two books to talk about but it's so interesting that she's not only going to this sort of you know something that isn't really there with every step it's a step away from what is happening in London what is happening you know as a proxy for her career London is a kind of where the where it's all happening at that point and she's yeah. kind of walking away from it she, oh, terribly I know. poignant it is I mean she does go back to London occasionally and she has these you know like you know, somebody had to drive me or I had to take the train or whatever it is, you know. She didn't this, walk back. No, she didn't. So there was always this mm-hmm. kind of oh, sort of, re, you know, resenting the fact that she had to leap back into the 20th century to, mm. to do this thing, which wasn't going to lead anywhere because she was never going to make a, a career in music. So there was this kind of this resentment that she had to go back for whatever reason, see family or to go see Joe Boyd in London. And she had made a promise to Joe Boyd to record these songs that she wrote along the way. So you know, occasionally, you know, she would also meet somebody else who would say, you've got to come and perform. And one thing I didn't mention in the review is that she had gone to the, to the Netherlands for a very brief tour that was just kind of a disaster. So everything that she had to do that had to do with her career, or everything she felt she should do in order to further her career, establish herself, she was already rejecting. So any 
contact with the modern world really seemed to be, you know, full of resentment for her. And she didn't want to sort of admit that, but she said, well, this isn't really what I want to do. I want to live in this commune. I want to, you know, live off the land, be a hippie, you know, for the rest of my life. So the times when she went back to London, they're so raw because you know, if you have any idea of what's going on musically during that time, from this distance, you know, retrospectively, you think, God, all these other bands are out there doing stuff that she hasn't heard. And she's got these little songs that she wrote walking up to Scotland that she's singing in a very particular way that doesn't conform to any sense of modern taste or, you know, aesthetic sensibility. So it's a really, that's the one of the reasons that her album is so, you know, such a time capsule because it's just, it's completely suspended in this weird hippie time that doesn't conform to anything else. So it's fascinating in that way. It is kind of out of the sort of mainstream of what is happening, as you say, musically then. I mean, it yeah. must have had, I mean, it's clearly got a very, very strong folk element as well as as well as a rock element. It does, but she she always said, I'm not a folk singer and this is, I'm mm. not this kind of a singer. I'm not that kind of a musician. So when Joe Boyd brought in members of the Incredible String Band and members of you know, Pentangle or Fairport Convention, whatever it was, um, she said, well, you know, that's, they're great musicians, but that's, I don't know what they do. They don't know what I do. I don't know their music and it's kind of not really what I want to do. She never really found a way of expressing directly, you know, going against the producer or going against another musician who was perhaps more competent than she was. She never really felt able to express what she really wanted. So there's a lot of, you know, I would have done that differently, or I wish I had said this, or, you know, I said something to this musician without realizing that I was crossing a line somehow. So mm. really not part of that scene at all, and kind of really uncomfortable being thrust into it. There's a wonderful um, kind of coda to it, though, isn't there? Because this, so she made this album, which, as you say, she wasn't very happy with. It was very particular peculiar to her as it were mm -hmm. and then she starts a family in fact she finds out that she gets pregnant she starts a family and she does that for the next 30 years I think yeah and then yeah. just another diamond day the album was rediscovered comes out and is an amazing a huge hit and she does then get recognition when she's got a bit more self-confidence and belief in herself and after having been told that she's not commercial and all those things suddenly she's a she's a worldwide smash it's wonderful isn't it and I mean she hid her music from her children so she didn't think they had ever heard her sing she thought that they didn't know that she'd recorded these albums but you know it comes out like they found the tapes in the attic and all kinds of stuff mm -hmm. but you know the the idea that suddenly you know somebody 30 years later is actually saying oh actually this would work really well on a mobile phone ad or a you know car ad or whatever it was yeah. and I, I think the first time I heard her was on the Freak Zone which is a Stuart McConey radio show and he was you know sort of saying like we're rediscovering this fantastic you know voice from the 60s I mean I think he'd heard her before but but there is this sense of rediscovery this weird little pocket of you know, folk psychedelia, what I don't even know what you would call it, mm. but just this you know, unique voice from the late 60s, early 70s that, you know, the narrative, of course, she's been lost, but she she hadn't been lost. She just kind of not followed through in any way. So it's yeah. it's fascinating. Yeah. It's that kind of funny fusion of different things that I don't know if you've read it, but it's putting me in mind of David Mitchell's novel, Utopia Avenue, which has this kind of imaginary band, and it's not modeled on. Ashley Bunyan particularly or Sandy Denny particularly it's a sort of composite portrait with mm. a woman kind of at its heart and it's very much that fusion of these extremely different kinds of music that seem to really typify the time it is a kind of British psychedelia I suppose isn't it yeah it is and peculiarly British she's a wonderful distillation of this very particular moment that could only exist here in Britain mm. I think we can actually we can have a treat and listen to a little bit of just another diamond day here I think <laughs> La, 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 la. 
And we have to move on from Vashti Bunyan because the other memoir is by Martha Wainwright, which takes part in very different circumstances because she's a generation later. And crucially, she's part of, she is very much part of the folk tradition, almost aristocracy already, isn't she, through her amazing family? She is. So uh, Martha Wainwright's brother is Rufus Wainwright, of course. Their parents are Loudon Wainwright the third and Kate McGarrigal. So Kate McGarrigal and Anna McGarrigal were the McGarrigal sisters, Montreal folk singers. So she grew up in a house that was full of music, house that was full of kind of domestic tensions, a house that was host to all the musicians from from everywhere would sort of have these enormous parties and these enormous celebrations and musical kind of just everything was was music. Every the whole existence revolved around music. And Martha Wainwright always she writes throughout her memoir that she kind of resisted the idea that she would make it a career in music because she sort of saw herself as different to her family. And I think anybody who has who comes through a family with a number of strong characters will decide that they need to find their own voice. And it's very difficult in that situation, I think, particularly in that situation. And she struggles throughout the book to, to find out enough about herself to know that she can do it and to, to strike out on her own as it is. Her book is so beautifully written because it's so honest. And she has troubles along the way. She has all kinds of troubles with her parents and friends and money and blah, blah, blah. All of it is just brought together in this compact and really simply, really plainly, really directly written expression of a really interesting creative mind. So it's a, if you, if you don't know her music, it's just a really great character to spend some time with. She's a bit more well-known, I guess. There's also, there's an essay collection, isn't there, that you wrote about. Can you just tell us the quick stories about women performers and writers and fans and all sorts of things? There's a great story in there about Anne Enright, the writer, being lost for words. <laughs> she is, and Anne Enright is such a beautiful writer and she she meets Laurie Anderson and just just kind of, you know, belches something. She doesn't know what to say. And it's that that horrible <laughs> moment, you know, like you shouldn't meet the person that you most want to meet, you know, and you know you're going to say something stupid. So you'd say the most stupid thing possible. And she's lived with this kind of shame of, of what she said to Laurie Anderson. You think, what would I have said otherwise? But to think that somebody who's such a beautiful crafter of words could be so lost for words is a wonderful way of understanding yourself as a reader putting yourself in that awful situation. There's some wonderful moments in that book and they're all very different. They're all written by very different women, but put together, they really give a, a much more complete picture of how women fit into the world of music. So as fans, you know, these extraordinary fans, but also as makers of music, as musicians themselves, as writers who use music as a conduit into their own creative practice. It's just, I, I couldn't even, you know, mention the one best chapter because there's so many good chapters in that book. There is so much more writing about women in music now. This is not the only uh, set of memoirs or set of essays that have been relatively recently published. And I'm thinking, say of something, I mean, Tracy Thorne, for example, has written about mm. her, her own life in music, but then wrote that, that kind of terrific book about Lindy Morrison yeah. uh, of The Go-Betweens, yeah. My Rock and Roll Friend. And these are, you know, these books are sort of, it feels like, you know, almost everywhere you look that these stories are now being told. And these just sound like three fantastic additions to that. They absolutely are. They absolutely are. I'm so sorry that we can't talk more. Everyone should go and read your wonderful piece, Sarah Hill. Many thanks for talking to us today. Thank you very much. have time for this week our thanks go to sarah hill and rowan mateson and thank you for listening to this episode of the tls podcast produced by charlotte pardy from lucy dallas and from me goodbye
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.